Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 6, War Has Changed. No offense to the Fallout games, which I enjoy very much, but war does indeed change. The objectives, tactics, weaponry, strategies, technologies, and command structures all changed during the later Muromachi period in ways that clearly altered the nature and face of Japanese warfare. One of the biggest ways in which war changed during Sengoku Jidai was the organization and involvement of common non-samurai soldiers called Ashigaru. As I mentioned last season, common-born warriors almost certainly played some part in the various conflicts of pre-Onin War Japan, but the documentation of their precise role in any given battle is poor and often unreliable. I do feel fairly confident regardless in claiming that common-born participation on the battlefield increased during the Sengoku period. The armies became much larger, and ambitious daimyo would be foolish to deny themselves such a vast recruiting pool as commoners willing to wield a spear, loose arrows from a bow, or, eventually, shoot a gun. So, why would a commoner join such an army? Many times they did not have a choice. If the local samurai official told you to pick up a spear and stand at post, you would either comply or be subjected to punitive violence and possibly even killed. There were obviously exceptions to who could be pressed into service. Buddhist monks, the elderly, and those with sickly constitutions were generally exempt. You may notice I did not include women in that list of those exempt, and let me assure you that that was not by accident. It is an unfortunate oversight on my part that we have not discussed women warriors or onnabu geisha since the Genpei War. Tomoe Gozen was not the only woman in Japanese history to ever take to the battlefield and win heads from enemies, but unfortunately we don't have a lot of reliable first-hand sources regarding exactly how many women samurai or onnabu geisha there were. Fortunately, our good friend archaeology is here to help. Historian Stephen Turnbull in his book Samurai Women 1184-1877 relays that an excavation of a mass grave from a battle in 1580 recovered 105 distinct skeletal remains, 35 of which were women. Other battlefield excavations from the same period have yielded similar results. Generally about 30% of the remains are women. Although the written sources rarely recorded such a phenomenon, the archaeology seems to suggest that a significant portion of those who fought in battles during Sengoku Jidai were women. In fact, the relative silence of the written accounts might be evidence that it was so common that no one at the time even considered such a thing noteworthy. We do know that women nearly always participated in castle defenses if they lived in the castle being assaulted and that daughters born to samurai families would usually be trained in at least the proper use of the dagger and naginata. While they would often later be used in political alliance marriages and expected to bear and raise children, evidence suggests that some instead sought glory on the battlefield, and that few people, if anyone, had the will or practical ability to prevent them. 
For largely political reasons, later Japanese historians would seek to minimize the role of women in the military and concoct elaborate reasons why women like Tomoe Gozen were curious oddities rather than relatively normal. There are more than a few important onnabu geisha who performed bravely and ably during Sengoku Jidai, and we will certainly include them when they emerge. However, I think it is also important to have the right picture in mind when visualizing armies in the Sengoku period. In seeming contrast to the conscripts, there were many volunteers among the commoner class who eagerly sought out opportunities to join armies in the Sengoku period. Some of their motivations can be easily guessed, and our discussion of the Onin War highlighted the desire for loot and movable wealth that drove the Ashigaru to burn most of the capital to the ground. There were a clever few among the emerging class of common warriors who had their sights set just a little higher than poverty wages and loot from smash-and-grab raids. One of the common warriors whom we will introduce later this season will even manage to become the most powerful daimyo in all of Japan, practically the apotheosis of Gekoku-jo. While some commoners would indeed find ways to climb into the upper echelons of the political hierarchy, the samurai were still very determined to preserve their status as noble warriors. Back in episode 4, we discussed the emergence of the latter Hojo clan, who were far from alone in attempting a nostalgic rebrand in order to solidify their legitimacy. Former middling or even minor clans would, as they gained power and influence, discover ancestral connections to the Minamoto or Taira clans. It's important to understand that many of these alleged claims were fabrications. In cases where commoners would find themselves climbing the ranks, such ancestral revisions weren't really an option, but they could utilize intermarriage to the daughters of daimyo to borrow the pedigree they lacked and ensure that their children had a right to inherit high offices for which they were not themselves legally qualified. After the Onin War, Ashigaru were quickly incorporated into pretty much every fighting force nationwide. Again, this development was not as sudden as it may seem in the national histories, but it certainly became more pronounced now. While the Ashigaru of the Onin War needed to make do with whatever armor and weapons they managed to scavenge from the dead, their martial descendants in the Sengoku period would enjoy the support of industrial infrastructure. Many daimyo invested in the mass production of arms and armor suitable for the lowly foot soldier. The Oyoroi style of armor with its large flat pauldrons, boxy armored skirts, and bright lace-bound lamellar was already making the transition from timeless and classical to quaint and outdated. In place of the bulky, unwieldy Oyoroi emerged a variety of armor styles which offered decent protection to the wearer while also managing to be lightweight, compact, and flexible. Tatami armor became especially popular among foot soldiers. Those of you familiar with the Japanese term tatami might be wondering if this armor was made from reed floor mats. While it has become closely associated with the durable traditional woven reed mat flooring, the word tatami actually means folding. Tatami floor mats are often conjoined in a way that can be folded together to store and save space and tatami armor likewise could be folded and stowed in a box when not in use. 
Tatami armor came in many different varieties, but was generally composed of chain mail with plates attached to the chains in critical areas like the torso, shoulders, and arms. I may do a more intensive study of the techniques and styles of weapons and armor as a bonus episode, but for our purposes today it is enough to know that the days of sparsely armored conscripts were over. The samurai themselves largely saw no need to abandon the flashier styles of armor which their ancestors had favored, though they did largely opt for protective plate mail rather than lamellar. You may recall that their forebears wore distinctive patterns so that they could be recognized when fighting in individual battlefield duels. The days of such duels were also long gone by now, in favor of developing a talent for command, a mind for strategy, or some helpful combination of both. Observant listeners will have noticed by now that this season's logo is the crest, or mon, of the Ashikaga clan, grayed out and shattered, with two crossed spears in the foreground. I considered using curved katana blades instead, but it seems likely that the spear was utilized far more often than swords during this period. Just as the Onin War saw the formation of Nobushi archer groups, who relied not on precision but on numbers alone, so Sengoku Jidai would see the emergence of similar groups of spearmen, first among the Ashigaru and later among the samurai. Cavalry was an important feature in Sengoku armies, but horse archery alone would no longer win the day. Being on horseback had many advantages, and some factions tried to choose plains and flatland battlefields where their horsemen could maneuver effectively, but the hard truth was that any long-term war was eventually going to boil down to castle defense and foot-based assault. While they were, and still are, impressive structures, all castles were not created equally. Some were the result of natural expansion and renovation of hilltop forts originally built during the Heian or even Nara periods, when the emperor sent shoguns to do battle against the indigenous Amishi in the east. Some had been built during the earlier Muromachi period, intended as a failsafe or a refuge between open field battles. Not every castle had the benefit of being designed and built by someone with the talents of Otadokan, and it also wasn't practical to keep them fully staffed with defenders at all times. In episode 4, The Rise of Hojo, we discussed how Hojo Soun seized Odawara Castle, possibly by the deception that it was about to be assaulted by thousands of warriors in a surprise attack. I think young daimyo Omori Fujiyori's alleged flight from the ruse can be forgiven if we keep in mind that he probably didn't have a lot of warriors on hand to defend the fortress from the impending assault. Stone foundations and walls of lumber didn't matter without the manpower to actually mount a defense. There were, of course, other logistical concerns associated with castles. Even if they were adequately manned for defense, Hungry people cannot fight. Thus the capability of storing food long-term was an essential upgrade for many of these fortresses, which generally meant storehouses called kura. It was during Sengoku that storehouses became an expression of wealth, and well-to-do daimyo would build multi-story kura to implicitly contain their many foodstuffs. During a siege, these storehouses would be a critical lifeline for the castle residents whom, over time, were not composed solely of warriors. 
History so often revolves around political and military leaders that it can be easy to forget the servants, attendants, pages, and food preparers who carried out the necessary tasks of keeping the castle clean, delivering messages, and making food. They also needed to eat, siege or no siege. While we usually think of castles as generally defensive in nature, some strategists in the late 1500s came to realize their offensive value. A large castle could serve as a staging ground for an army to prepare before invading enemy territory, so building new castles near disputed borders was rightly seen as an act of aggression. The destruction of such buildings during the early phases of construction was sometimes necessary for a faction's security, so the ability to raise these fortifications very quickly was a valuable skill. That being said, the strategy of building castles quickly to try and make a permanent occupation was not without its hazards. In the next episode, we will follow the career of one daimyo whose army became overstretched after he had constructed a castle as a forward base. He was obliged to abandon the fortification to quell uprisings against his overtaxed troops, and his enemies were only too happy to occupy it in his absence, thus securing themselves against further aggression. Now that warfare had begun to favor mass infantry, sieges, and grand strategies, what place did the traditional horse archer samurai have in the army? Because the samurai were given rewards depending on their performance in battle, it didn't make sense for them to act as mere cavalry and let the ashigaru steal their glory. While they would largely continue to own horses, these animals were used more for transportation than tactical advantage. Many samurai, seeking to earn more rewards from their grateful lieges, opted to fight on foot with spear, sword, or bow in order to distinguish themselves on the battlefield. Which brings us to the subject of the samurai themselves. The need for warriors to swell the ranks of armies and hopefully help win battles overrode any sense of ancestral pedigree which had previously distinguished noble samurai from the ordinary commoner. In fact, since at least the Nanbokucho War, pretty much anyone who owned a weapon could answer a call to arms and potentially begin a career as a samurai. We've discussed samurai rewards in somewhat vague details up until now, but specifically samurai were awarded annual salaries called stipends. These stipends were based on koku, one of which was the equivalent to the amount of rice necessary to keep someone alive for a year, about 330 pounds. The stipend itself would be distributed once a month, and while ashigaru were expected to get by on a mere 4 koku a year, samurai were usually given 100 koku or more per annum. The road to receiving a stipend in the first place was distinction on the battlefield, during the Nanbokucho War, it became somewhat commonplace for armed people to show up after a battle had ended, claiming that they had participated and were thus owed a reward. By the Sengoku period, most daimyo made efforts to clamp down on the completely unsurprising fraud that plagued the civil wars of yesteryear. Instead of just showing up and taking your share of rice, you needed to submit a report listing your expenditures for the battle, whether you were wounded, and what brave actions you took that helped turn the tide of battle in your chosen faction's favor. 
The report you filed would be investigated by agents of the daimyo, and if the applicant's bold maneuvers could be corroborated, or if their account of the battle more or less synced with what actually occurred, they might indeed earn a reward. Considering the massive size of some battles during Sengoku, if every surviving warrior wrote such a report, it would be impossible for a daimyo's agent to reasonably verify each one. It was actually pretty unusual for a warrior to write only of their own experiences. Most of the time they fought with a particular group, and the leader would write the after-action report, making note of casualties as well as the notable accomplishments any of the group's members had achieved on the battlefield. Such bands of warriors were referred to as Ikki, which again means league, and in the early part of Sengoku Jidai, many were composed of veteran Ashigaru of the Onin War who decided to continue seeking their fortunes in combat. One such group, the Saikashu, made a name for themselves fighting on behalf of the Hatakayama clan during the ongoing succession disputes in the late 1400s. These mercenary bands were paid in coin, rather than annual rice salaries, and thus they maintained their independence. This brings us to the subject of Ronin. Masterless samurai were nothing new in the Sengoku period, they had been around since at least the period following the Mongol invasions, but in the age of civil wars, they would sometimes play important roles on the battlefield, even being among the higher-ranked officers in a given army. All it meant to be a ronin during Sengoku Jidai was that you were willing to fight, but you had not sworn any kind of loyalty oath to anyone. Ronin generally did not own land, were paid in coin, and were often given distasteful tasks which the sworn vassals considered beneath their honor or too dangerous. A ronin who did well in battle, especially if they performed some brave feat like being first over a wall at a siege, could often gain an offer of permanent employment from a daimyo. For some, this vassalship was the endgame, and they happily accepted a stipend. Others, however, valued their own independence and preferred to play the field, as it were. Sometimes a daimyo won a battle because he deployed his troops cleverly and listened to his wise advisors, and other times a leader just got lucky. It wouldn't make any sense to swear oneself to a daimyo whom you believed was only one bad decision away from losing everything. Also, becoming a vassal meant taking on responsibility. A ronin who was taking a rest at a temple to nurture their spiritual side, for example, could simply ignore a call to arms and continue meditating. A vassal did not have such a luxury, and could be severely punished if he failed to report for battle. If a ronin was being verbally abused by a daimyo, he could just leave, hit the bricks. A vassal was expected to endure abuse from their liege, both verbal and possibly physical, without talking back or defending themselves. The trope of the lone ronin wandering the earth bringing justice to the downtrodden was birthed at least a hundred years after Sengoku Jidai. The ronin of this period were, much like their vassal counterparts, largely ambitious, thuggish, and indifferent to the injustice suffered by the poor. We've spent much of this episode discussing foot soldiers, and you may be wondering if there was any place at all for cavalry in this new order of warfare. Horsemen were still useful in the emerging army organization, especially as scouts and messengers. 
large armies needed a way to relay new orders and observe the progress of a given battle to report to the daimyo. Cavalry were also still active participants in battle, especially in areas like the Kanto Plain, where the broad, flat land offered room for flanking maneuvers capable of scattering massed Ashigaru. The Takeda clan in particular became known for their superior cavalry, and while this may have given them the advantage they needed to ultimately dominate national politics in previous eras, it was downgraded to a minor advantage because of an incredibly powerful new weapon which came to Sengoku, Japan, from foreign shores. This new weapon arrived first on a small island called Tanegashima, which lies just south of Kyushu. In 1543, a Chinese trading ship anchored near Tanegashima's coast to wait out a storm, and while they were in the vicinity, opted to trade with the Japanese who lived on the island. The daimyo Tanegashima Tokitaka was especially impressed by a strange weapon which the Portuguese traders showed him, it had a long cylinder, a lit fuse, and a trigger. Guns had come to Japan. Tanegashima Tokitaka purchased two of these guns, called snap muskets, from the Portuguese traders. He gave them to a blacksmith in the hopes that he could reproduce them. The smith came very close, but some of the fabrication left him puzzled. The next year, a Portuguese ship came to Tanegashima, and on board was a gunsmith, who helped Tanegashima's smith perfect the manufacturing process. The creation of Tanegashima firearms, also called Teppo, was an important milestone in the history of Japanese warfare. These muskets offered many advantages over the traditional yumiya bows and arrows, as they could pierce most armor, and the loud report along with the smoke was very effective at spreading terror through enemy ranks. This fearsome new weapon would gradually proliferate throughout Sengoku, Japan, though its manufacturing process would slow down distribution somewhat. Using the tools and techniques available, crafting just one musket took a great deal of time and demand would nearly always outstrip supply. Regardless of availability, many leading daimyo of the age quickly understood the value of such a weapon on the battlefield, and some even predicted that musketeers would eventually outnumber soldiers wielding spears, swords, and bows. We are a few hundred years away from that at the moment, but one particularly well-known future leading man had a great personal fondness for firearms and loved to go shooting with his friends. We will cover more of the military developments of the Sengoku period as they come up, especially as they impact specific battles, and the fortunes of the daimyo who vied against one another for power and influence. Next time, we will begin the first of two episodes following the developments of some of the great clans across the nation, specifically the Imagawa, Takeda, and Uesugi. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank <laughs> you.